0: This is Christian Knutson and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from our home and via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines U.S. Representative Ron Kind has announced that he won't be seeking re election next year. A Democrat, Kind has represented portions of southwestern Wisconsin for more than 24 years. The Associated Press reports Kind is one of just seven House Democrats who represent districts where former President Donald Trump received more votes votes than President Joe Biden in last November's election. Kind secured a narrow win over Republican challenger Derek Van Orden last year. Kind will serve out the remainder of his term before retiring.
1: A new report from the Wisconsin Department of Health Services shows that opioid overdoses have increased since the start of the pandemic. According to the report, Wisconsin averaged nearly nine opioid overdose incidents per 100,000 people pre-COVID. That rate has since spiked to 13.1 overdoses per 100,000 people from March through August of last year. Preliminary, non-finalized data from the agency shows that roughly 1,200 Wisconsinites died from opioid overdoses in 2020. That would be the highest death toll in at least the past 20 years. Relatedly, the State Health Health Department has announced that it will be diverting $10.4 million over the next five years towards opioid mitigation efforts. That includes covering boarding costs at treatment centers and providing funding for prevention programs for Wisconsin's Black and Indigenous communities.
0: In case you missed it, there's an election today in Dane County. Four writing candidates are squaring off to represent the Dane County Board of Supervisors 20th District. That district encompasses portions of Sun Prairie, Windsor, Bristol, Medina, and Marshall. Since none of the the four candidates submitted campaign paperwork ahead of the deadline, they are all running as write-ins. The special election comes after the death of Supervisor Julie Schwellenbach in May.
1: Dane County employees will be allowed to work remotely through the rest of 2021. The Capital Times reports county government employees will be permitted to work from home at least until January 3rd of 2022. The move comes as COVID-19 cases in Dane County and across the state have spiked in recent weeks. The decision comes about a week after local leaders announced new vaccination requirements for city and county government employees. Under those new rules, employees must either receive a COVID-19 vaccine or present a negative COVID-19 test every week.
0: Madison City leaders will once again take up the debate over a camp of unhoused residents at Rheindahl Park this week. For the past several months, the City has permitted unhoused residents to stay in both Rheindahl and nearby Starkweather Park. The issue will be before both the Public Safety Review Committee and the Equal Opportunities Commission this week. The committee will be discussing the issue tomorrow at 5pm, and the Commission will be considering it at its meeting this Thursday at 5pm. Both meetings will be virtual.
1: And now for your daily COVID-19 numbers. The Wisconsin Department of Health Services reports that the seven-day average of new cases continues to climb. The daily average currently stands at about 1,100 cases per day. And now on to today's top stories.
0: Mass timber buildings are set to be built both in Madison and Milwaukee over the next few years. But just what is mass timber, and why are people so excited about it? WORT reporter Nick Wegehout has the story.
2: On the 800 block of East Washington, within the Tenney-Lapham neighborhood of downtown Madison, an architectural design well-known in the Pacific Northwest is making its way into the Midwest, The Baker's Place building, a proposed building being built downtown, is what is known as a mass timber building. The 14 story tall lumber landmark will be a mixed use site with 220 units available to rent, as well as 1,100 square feet of commercial space on the bottom floor. The building will utilize a material called mass timber. But what is mass timber? According to the American Wood Council, mass timber is an architectural style that layers pieces of soft wood into a, well, massive block of wood, which is then compressed and glued together to create a wall, floor, or roofing. One of the main advantages of mass timber is its light carbon footprint, which is what drove Madison Development Company The Neutral Project to decide on it for the project. The Neutral Project's managing partner, Nate Helbeck, spoke before the Madison Urban Design Commission in June, where Helbeck pitched the merits of mass timber. The reason we chose mass timber as our design system is because it has a unique ability to sequester carbon and is one of the only materials that align with our mission to reduce our carbon emissions to to neutral. The Neutral Project helps projections for reduced energy consumption in Baker House. They also say elements like low-flow sink fixtures and native landscapes will help conserve water. So we we see uh, water conservation as kind of a low-hanging fruit right now that we want to pick in our sustainability standard. And what we plan to do is have low-flow fixtures, native landscaping, green roofs, and a reduction in stormwater and wastewater. Now. One question that is almost certainly on your mind is, wouldn't a timber-made building be highly flammable? The American Wood Council assures us that mass timber actually works as a fire retardant, as tests funded by the U.S. Forest Service show that the wood would simply char, as it is too dense to actually burn, and mass timber does in fact meet fire safety standards. Baker's Place would take over a plot currently occupied by the historic Gardner Bakery. Project spokesperson Candace Nickel says that the historic site will be preserved.
3: You can see here we're maintaining the Gardner Bakery building along the frontage on East Washington Street with a setback 14-story massing that steps down towards East Main Street from 10 stories down to 9 stories.
2: Opponents to the current plan state that, as it currently stands, Baker's Place would exceed the maximum height allowed by code. Under Wisconsin's Uniform Building Code, commercial mass timber buildings are limited to four stories unless the architect pursues a variance. And, just last month, the Urban Design Commission approved a plan that allowed the project to seek such a variance. The mixed-use site in Madison follows another project from the Neutral Project in Milwaukee. The 220-unit building, called the Edison, is still under review by the Milwaukee City Plan Commission. With WORT News, I'm Nate Wigiehoutt.
1: Earlier today, Governor Tony Evers vetoed a batch of six Republican-authored election bills. Legislative Republicans argued those bills were essential to preserve the integrity of the future elections in Wisconsin. Democrats and civil rights groups called them voter suppression. For more, we turn to WORT producer Jonah Chester. The package of six bills
4: sought to, among other things, alter absentee voting procedures, change voting procedures for nursing home residents, and bar election officials from filling in missing info on absentee ballot envelopes. Another bill would have placed restrictions on ballot collection events, such as Madison's Democracy in the Park events, during which poll workers collected absentee ballots. Legislative Republicans said the bills would tighten election security and close potential loopholes in the state's voting laws. But during a press conference at the state capitol today, Governor Tony Evers said GOP lawmakers were attempting to alter election rules to benefit themselves. They're trying to stack the deck so that they get the results they want this time. They're trying to make it harder for every eligible person to cast their ballot. Since last November's presidential election, Republicans across the country have introduced a proverbial mountain of restrictive voting legislation. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, as of July, lawmakers in 49 states had collectively introduced more than 400 bills that sought to restrict voting access. So far this year, at least 18 states have enacted tighter voting laws. Most of those bills are in direct response to the repeated lies spread by former President Donald Trump and his adherents. Trump, who lost Wisconsin by a roughly 21,000-vote margin, repeatedly alleged widespread voter fraud in Wisconsin and other swing states. The Associated Press reports that Wisconsin election officials are currently investigating 27 potential voter fraud cases stemming from the presidential election. That's out of the roughly 3.3 million ballots cast in the state last November. Evers accused legislative Republicans of peddling conspiracy theories during today's press conference.
2: Republican legislators have made noise about this since the days
4: before the election in last November. And they've convinced a number of their constituents that there is a problem. Governor Evers and legislative Democrats aren't the only ones who took issue with the bills. As part of the package, Republicans sought to overhaul absentee and indefinitely confined voter provisions. That would have included new voter ID and registration policies for indefinitely confined voters. An indefinitely confined voter is someone who is unable to cast their ballot in person, and they're one of the few groups excluded from Wisconsin's voter ID laws. Jenny Newgart of Wisconsin's Disability Vote Coalition says changing those policies could disenfranchise voters with disabilities.
3: These bad voting bills
5: would significantly restrict the abilities of voters with disabilities, older adults, and many other Wisconsin voters from participating in the voting process. Absentee voting is a lifeline for people with disabilities with transportation barriers and unpredictable medical conditions.
4: According to the Wisconsin Elections Commission, more than a quarter million people claimed indefinitely confined voter status last November. That's up from about 67,000 folks in the November 2016 election. In a ruling this past December, the Wisconsin Supreme Court held that it was up to each individual voter to determine whether or not they are indefinitely confined. Many chose to apply for the status last year due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. But speaking to reporters in February, Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss argued that the indefinitely confined voter status was abused during the November election.
1: Uh, but the very idea that somebody who is out, you know, uh, living their normal life, um, acting as if they are not indefinitely confined and using that as a way to circumvent the photo ID law should be something that all of us are upset about.
4: Governor Evers's vetoes have, unsurprisingly, faced pushback from Wisconsin's Republican leaders. Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu wrote in a press release that the governor, quote, showed he's committed to keeping the same laws and loopholes that were exploited during the pandemic, unquote. Speaker Voss wrote that Evers was, quote, making another momentous mistake with his veto pen. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester.
1: The current time right now is 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: The Dane County Humane Society is currently coping with a surplus of cats. So far this month, the society has taken in nearly 90 cats, bringing the shelter's total feline population to about 125. According to Amy Good, the Humane Society's Director of Development and Marketing, those new cats come as adoptions have stagnated. For more about this paw problem, good join WORT producer Jonah Chester earlier today. I was scrolling
4: through Instagram last week when I noticed the Dane County Humane Society had put out a, a bit of a call out that you all need uh, adopters pretty much immediately because you have a surplus of cats. So how many cats right now need to find homes here in the next few weeks? What What level of surplus are you looking at here?
3: Well, our misbalance here is that we've taken in nearly 90 cats already this month, and we've only sent home 57. And so adoptions have been a bit slower than usual and intakes much higher. So we are currently helping about 125 cats. Now, they're not all immediately available for adoption. Some might be on a stray hold. Some might have a medical issue that we're working through. But on any given day, we're probably going to have about 30 cats available for adoption.
4: So why has the intake been so much higher recently? Have you been able to attribute that to a specific cause or is it a number of factors?
3: We really can't place a finger on why we have so many cats right now. There's no one factor that's contributing to it at all. It is a mix of owner surrenders and strays and just everything's just higher than it has been in previous years. And that's kind of a trend that has been seen, not just with us, but at other shelters in Wisconsin and even further beyond throughout the nation.
4: Now, I find that point rather interesting because, you know, about this time uh, last year, towards the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, I I know we saw a bit of an uptick in adoptions from the Humane Society and elsewhere. Was that sort of outside? Obviously, everything about the early part of the pandemic was outside the norm. But so you're telling me that bump there was outside the normal trends that as it stands, most years you're sort of facing more intakes, less adoptees. Is, Is that a good read into that situation?
3: So certainly COVID-19 had a huge impact on how adoptions were last year. I mean, so many people adopted pandemic pets, and those animals are not the ones coming into us. I just want to assure everybody about that. We're not seeing a dramatic return from that. So adoptions last year were just phenomenal. I mean, just supply could not meet the demand, which is something that you know we've really never seen in many, many years of animal sheltering. But if we look at pre-pandemic numbers, Our intake back in 2019 was 21 cats, and we had 84 adoptions. So just it's it's just completely off this month for whatever reason. Certainly during the summer, we call that kitten season. I mean, really, it's April through October. That's when people keep finding kittens under their porch or, you know, that sort of thing. And um, it's always busier during this time of year, but this is really just outside the norm.
4: You mentioned a minute ago that some of the some of the cats and kittens y'all are intaking are not immediately available for adoption. Why is that? Is there is there a holding period when they initially come in, where in case anybody wants to claim that cat, you you sort of hold it just in case, or wh- why is there that lapse there?
3: Sure. So there is a legal stray holding period. We are um, the official stray holding facility for Dane County. We are not a part of the government. We are a private nonprofit, but we hold the contract to hold strays at our facility. And we do have to hold them at least four days for the owner to reclaim them. And we do a really good job of that, especially with dogs. Nearly 70% of our dogs are reunited during that stray holding period. Cats, it's only about 14%, and that's still way above the national average, which is like 2 or 3%, but unfortunately, most cats that come to us are not finding their way home. The other reason we might have cats not immediately available for adoption is we have uncovered some sort of medical issue that might need to get worked up. We have a full veterinary team at the Humane Society, and they're able to do surgeries, um, exams, testing, and all sorts of things that make sure our animals are healthy before they go on to their new homes. So we just always wanna make sure we're doing our due diligence and getting our animals ready for adoption, Um, as best as we can to make a better match with their new family.
4: So how does this uh, surplus you're going through right now with cats, how does that compare to, let's say, dogs, which I'm assuming is the Humane Society's other major animal that they have up for adoption? Are you seeing a similar surplus in your dog population right now?
3: So dogs are pretty static. They're about where we would expect. We're still in a situation where we are transferring in lots of dogs from other areas. So we're not seeing an uptick in local intake of of dogs. We do, by chance, have a lot of rats and small animals available right now. And that's just because we had a couple, um, somebody found two rats that had babies. And then we also found, uh, somebody found at a hotel, 15 rats abandoned. And some of those had babies. So we have a huge rat population as well right now. But that just happens sometimes with those small animals that we get an uptick with with large intakes like that. Uh,
4: Just anecdotally here, and and no dig at the rats, but what's the adoption market for, for rats and other small rodents like that look like? You know, typically when I think of going to the Humane Society to adopt a pet, I'm either going for a cat or a dog
3: and that is definitely the largest species adoptions that we have our cats and dogs but we do have people that know to come to us for small animals as well we tend to get rabbits mice rats sometimes birds sometimes reptiles sometimes you know gerbils or hamsters too and we do fairly well on getting those adopted it can take a little bit longer than especially our dog population Um, But when we have a large group of animals like that, you know, when we have 15 or 30 rats looking for a home, it definitely takes a while to, to find all those homes.
4: So, you know, and this is this is sort of away from the main point here, but it's something I'm curious about. Uh, as you probably know, a lot of places right now are experiencing worker shortages. How does your staffing look like at the Humane Society? You know, as you're facing the surplus, are you also having trouble finding folks to fill either your volunteer roles or your, your paid staff roles? Or are you, Are you pretty good on staffing right now?
3: We are definitely understaffed, both with paid staff and volunteers right now. And part of that was during COVID, we had to restrict our volunteers from coming in just because of the sheer number of people in the building and wanting to be able to maintain social distance and other COVID procedures. Um, But we started to welcome some of those volunteers back, but not everybody's comfortable coming back yet or they've moved on to other things. So we definitely are actually looking for volunteers. On a staffing perspective, you know, Pretty much it seems like every other business, we are definitely short-staffed and having a really hard time filling our open positions. So even when we have all of these animals for adoption, we have vacant adoption counselor positions open. So if we could have uh, a fully staffed adoptions group, we'd be able to get more animals adopted more quickly. So it definitely is playing into um, just not being able to get animals adopted as quickly as we'd like as well.
4: Yeah. Would you be able to build out a little bit more on that? What what does a lack of staffing mean? How does that play out in your day-to-day? How does it strain the humane society?
3: So we have at any given time, you know, maybe as many as 250 animals in our facility. And that takes a huge crew of both staff and volunteers to provide that daily care and comfort. So when we are understaffed, you know, that means that our staff are just spending, you know, longer at work. We have staff that are supposed to, you know, be done at five o'clock at night that might be there till seven. People are working a lot at overtime, but there are just shifts that are just open and that we are unable to fill. So we're still able to meet the basic needs of our animals and they're definitely getting the care and the medical attention they need. But when we have an opening, let's say in our adoption center, that means we just can't have as many visitors being able to meet animals and then take them home.
4: Kind of circling back around to the to the cat issue, um, if sure. somebody wants to adopt one of those many cats you all have up for adoption at the moment, what do they need to know? Uh, if somebody just walks into the Humane Society today, can they walk out with a, a new feline friend or what should they know going in?
3: We definitely are able to do same-day adoptions and people are welcome to walk through our building and look at our available animals during our open hours. Once we have Uh, Enough people, though, on our wait list, we might have to close that. So if we have already, you know, if we already have 10 people waiting to meet with an adoption counselor and an animal, we might say, well, we can't add anybody more to the list today, and you're going to have to come back tomorrow. So we definitely encourage people to come to the shelter early in the afternoon on weekdays, especially because that's our slowest time. If you're coming, you know, right at five o'clock, it's going to be a lot harder to get in to see an animal.
4: I've been joined on the other end of the line by Amy Good, the Director of Development and Marketing at the Dane County Humane Society. Amy, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News right here on
0: WORT. Stay with us, we've got a lot more stories for you. Coming up in the second half of the show, Cardinal Call shares the latest news from the UW-Madison campus.
1: Wildlife Weekly explores the mysteries of bird digestion.
0: And Radio Astronomy previews the upcoming launch of the James Webb Space Telescope.
1: But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines back in a flash. The time now is 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Christian Knutsen. Thanks for joining us. Every other week, we check in with the staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to get the latest news from campus. For more, we turn to Cardinal's Hope Carnop.
6: Hello, and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal Student Newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnop, joined today by associate news editor Sam Henschel to talk about the new campus mask order that went into effect Thursday. So thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start with some of the basics. Um, Who does this mask order apply to and what areas of campus are affected by this?
7: So this new mask order applies to everyone that would be on campus um, at any capacity. So that's going to be students, employees, and visitors. And it is in effect for indoor spaces. Um, So for outdoor spaces, the rule is that they still recommend face coverings for those that are unvaccinated, um, but they haven't put anything in place yet. Uh, I don't don't know if they will, but they haven't. And then the rule right now is that effective immediately. um, It started today. If you are in, you know, a common area of campus or in an indoor building, you will have to wear a face mask. There are some exceptions to that, but uh, there were only two small ones that I could find that um, would allow you to not wear a mask indoors.
6: Yeah. So what were some of the reasons that UW cited for this change in policy?
7: Yeah. So Madison and Dane County in general is seeing a a large uptick in COVID cases right now. Um, For the past two weeks, they've seen over a 100 percent increase in cases. And, you know, obviously that numbers have been inflated because they didn't really have a lot before. They have a pretty high vaccination rate and campus as a whole, um, They have a feeling that it's going to be around 80 percent of students that have the vaccination, but they cited the Delta variant as the main point of concern. And just because COVID cases are are ticking up in the area.
6: Have you heard or sort of observed on social media any student reactions to this new mask order? How do you think they're feeling about it?
7: Yeah, I've seen two very interesting sides. Um, On one hand, I think a lot of people are very upset about it. They're upset that, you know, if I vaccinated myself and protected myself against COVID-19, why do I have to go out of my way to protect other people that didn't protect themselves in advance when they could just do something that would help them and help their community out? Um, But on the other hand, you know, a lot of people are kind of complaining about those people complaining and they're kind of taking more of the community health stance where it's like, well... You really should be doing this to protect your community. And if you want to complain about it, then, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense of like as a, something that you should complain about.
6: We should also note that under a proposal passed at the state level last week, these type of requirements would have to go before the Republican led rules committee um, and they could block part or all of these policies. And according to that committee, the UW has 30 days to submit their policies to them. Um, UW still thinks that they can act on their own, but that deadline is just before classes start. So do you kind of expect to see some uncertainty surrounding COVID um, right before the fall semester starts?
7: Yeah, I think so. And I think part of it just comes from the fact that the Delta variant is just really starting to heat up and we don't really know how long it's going to last. And I think the other part of it and maybe why they didn't say when this is over or if it'll last the fall um, is because the university itself doesn't actually know because of that order and because of that committee um, what they'll be allowed to do and what they'll be allowed to mandate. So I think that there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure whether to be hopeful if this will be over by fall or not, but I think that they're probably looking at it from the perspective of doing what they can right now to make sure that in the fall we can do less. Just
6: thinking back to how last fall was, do you think it's kind of similar or different to what was kind of the response leading up to the Smart Restart?
7: The concerns are both very similar in the way that people don't want, you know, their, their freedom at like school taken away or they don't want their, their college experience taken away. Um, so I think that the smart restart program, like comparing it to what's happening now, I think that the concerns are maybe even a little bit stronger because, you know, people have had, a year and a half, maybe two years even taken away from them at college and now when they thought they were out of the clear, uh, when they got vaccinated, um, it's kind of like, oh well we have to start this over again. And I think a lot of people, you know, put that blame on people who are unvaccinated and uh, I think that's where a lot of their frustration comes from. Great, well is there anything else you think listeners should know about this story? No, I don't think so. I would just say, um, you know, keep an eye out uh, on the Daily Cardinal website and our app and our social media because as more information becomes available, we we will definitely be updating the community on it. So, um, yeah, just stay stay tuned.
6: Great. Thanks so much for coming on to talk about this. Yeah, thank you for having me. In other campus news, a study led by researchers at UW-Madison, Public Health Madison and Dane County, and Exact Sciences found that vaccinated people can also spread COVID-19. Some vaccinated people that were infected in Wisconsin in June and July had just as much virus in their nasal passages as unvaccinated people. It mirrors new research out from the CDC. The Madison researchers said that vaccination remains critical. University Health Services continues to provide free COVID-19 vaccines to eligible community members with drop-in hours from Monday through Friday. Chamberlain Rock was removed from Observatory Drive on Friday. Students of color have viewed the boulder as a representation of historical racism and oppression on campus. It was referred to by a racial slur from the 1920s to the 1950s. Black and Indigenous students led efforts to remove the rock. It will now be placed on land owned by the university near Lake Kaganza. Hippie Christmas will descend upon Madison in the next few days. Many student leases are ending over the upcoming weekend, leaving students with a few days to crash on their friends' couches or find another place to spend the night. If you're looking for some used furniture, now might be the time to keep an eye on the curbs to scrounge for items that students are leaving behind. But moving season can also produce a lot of waste. According to the city, moving season can generate up to a million pounds of trash every year. In recent years, the UW's Office of Sustainability has taken steps to help students move out in a more safe and environmentally friendly way. In 2021, volunteers worked to divert almost 97,000 pounds from the landfill. University Housing also helps collect donations for St. Vincent de Paul. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com or download our app, You can also find links to our podcast, The Student Dive, on our website. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
0: You are what you eat, or so the saying goes, and presumably that idea applies just as much to birds as it does to people. So this week on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg gets into everything you may or may not have ever wanted to know about bird digestion.
5: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the wildlife training supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment and today we're going to be talking about the bird digestive system. Who would have thought that as a rehabilitator you'd be thinking about the GI tract? Well believe it or not that's like 50 percent of our jobs (laughs) is looking at what types of birds have different types of GI systems, what they eat, what they digest, and what could also go wrong. So I thought this would be an interesting uh, segment to talk about just because we have so many different bird species here in Wisconsin and all of them have very different anatomies. And we do see a lot of common diseases that sometimes crop up in birds, Uh, no pun intended, crop up. Uh, We're gonna be talking about the crop. The crop is a muscular pouch that is inside of a bird. It is along the esophagus. So imagine your mouth opens and you swallow. It's, it goes your food goes down the esophagus. And for birds, it ends up in the crop. And so it's this little pouch that is uh, different than what would be found in people, right? We don't have a crop. But what it does is it just softens food and it helps regulate the flow through the the system. Uh, basically, it just temporarily holds a whole bunch of food for a bird. So there are certain species that might have a very large crop that, you know, for example, a turkey vulture or a red-tailed hawk or something might gorge on some food. Maybe they find a rabbit or a mouse in the wild and they they catch it and they eat it. Um, their crop can actually get really, really large. And sometimes they'll even just sit there on the ground and won't fly away. So, you know, occasionally we'll have a a bird that, you know, gets a a little bit of an evaluation by a finder. They call in and they say, hey, this raptor has been sitting on the ground for a few hours and it's not flying away. Well, it could actually just be digesting because that's something that commonly happens in that species. Uh, Now, there are other different uses for the crop. Um, I think we've done previous segments about mourning doves that actually produce uh, crop milk for their babies. So they feed that to their young by regurgitating it into their mouths or allowing them to feed out of it. Uh, That would also include pigeons, anything in the family Columbidae. And so the crop is definitely a very important organ for a lot of species. And then the food moves from the crop then into what is called the proventriculus. And that is the uh, name for the avian stomach. Uh, and it usually has two different sections. We call the first the proventriculus uh, and then the gizzard. And that they work in tandem basically to digest the food. So uh, the most important we would say is probably the, well, okay, they're both really important. But the, the gizzard is what is known by for more of the mechanical digestion. So it's crushing the food, it's rotating it around. Um, and uh, some of them are more extensive In especially the herbivorous bird species, so mostly turkeys. And a lot of times, species will pick up pieces of rocks, for example, or little pebbles on the ground, gravel sometimes, or grit or stone, and they actually add that into their food so that when it goes through the crop and into the gizzard, then it can actually help break down food even better. So, what's really interesting is that, you know, some species in care, we have to make sure we are offering grit or little pieces of of rocks. So, for us, we definitely think about species like morning doves that, you know, would do this very frequently. Um, but uh, we do offer it to pretty much all of our species here uh, just as a choice in their diets. You know, maybe they do decide they want to pick out a little bit of calcium, maybe some oyster shell, maybe some grit, some rocks. So we kind of give them everything that they may- might need just in case that is something that is unique to their species. So we've got the, uh, just again, we've got the mouth, the food goes in, goes down the esophagus to the crop, if they have one, and keep in mind that some species like owls don't have crops, Uh, and then it goes to the proventriculus, which is basically the stomach, that would be most similar to what would be found in people, has the acid that kind of breaks down all the different foods that are being digested, we've got the gizzard, uh, and then it goes down into the intestines, and that's where the partially digested food goes, and that's where it's now this, uh, basically this pocket or bolus of food, uh, and that's where the ends of digestion take place so that then everything that's nutritious can go to other parts of the body. And what's really cool is that that's not always the end for birds. There are um, ways that birds can actually regurgitate their food. So, you know, that owls might cough up a pellet, for example. Um, that is definitely something that can happen if they decide. Uh, and this is actually something they can choose to do. Uh, it's a, a voluntary muscle type of movement. They can d- choose to cough up a pellet. And then otherwise, it would go out the Uh, excretory system, so for birds the cloaca, and uh, I think that is pretty much it. So from start to end, that is how the digestive system in birds work. Now, what have we seen going, going wrong? Um, we do have definitely different diseases that we can find. Um, uh, the first one that I think of right off the bat would be, if you start in the mouth, uh, candida infections or yeast infection in the mouth. It can uh, really cause problems in a lot of birds so that you know they get what's called sour crop. And it really it happens more often in young birds, but it can definitely be spread from adults to young ones through contaminated water or um, sometimes hand-feeding formulas even. So it's something you have to be really aware of. So, you know, in small numbers of candida, little yeast, uh, it's not going to be so bad. But if it gets really large, then you might have trouble with the excess yeast. It's going to disrupt the whole system. And so you might get excess bacteria that grows in the digestive tract, uh, in the crop. And that overgrowth of candida is definitely uh, not, not good. And that can also be, you know, if you think of when you make bread, you know, you usually add a little bit of sugar in your yeast mixture, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, sugars and carbohydrates are going to be the ones that are going to be um, consumed by the candida and causes that overgrowth. So it can totally compromise their um, digestive system, and you might have to put them on antibiotics. Uh, Not exactly great because that actually can cause more problems down the line, and of course we're always worried about things like antibiotic resistance in birds. If it's an advanced candida infection, it's rare, but it can uh, basically shut down the whole system it, once it gets into the blood or organs, uh, even has been found in bone marrow sometimes. So usually if you are worried about it, you, you know, we can do um, for our wild birds, uh, a mouth swab to identify if they have it. Otherwise they could be lethargic, fluffed up, maybe not have much of an appetite or you see a lot of regurgitation, uh, their crop doesn't empty. That's something really common with our, our baby doves when we're feeding them that can happen. or it might become impacted. The crop can get full of food and then it just hardens and then it's not able to pass. So uh, birds are very they're special. You have to be watching for all these different things while they're in rehabilitation, you know, and making sure that you can catch it right away so that you can treat it appropriately uh, so that they can be successfully rehabilitated. Um, Other things we see are sometimes items uh, like bones stuck in the crop or in the mouth, um, sometimes lacerations, sometimes we have uh, punctures through the crop into the neck cavity. Um, So those are definitely things we see, but also just general internal parasites that live in the digestive system. And when you have birds and rehabilitation. Generally, when you find parasites, if you do a fecal sample, for example, and we do parasitology, looking for parasites under a microscope, we might find those internal parasites and we would treat for that. Not that they don't always have it, because sometimes they do, especially being wild. But treating for it in captivity is really important because generally, the stress of being here can cause the parasite load to actually increase. And so we don't want them to be compromised while they're trying to recover from other injuries. So that's a little bit about our uh, digestive system in birds and what we commonly see, maybe some of the injuries, uh, diseases, and other such things. Just some examples and birds are cool. So I hope you learned something today about their uh, digestion. And if you have any questions, definitely give us a call at 608-287-3235. And otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly.
0: It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This fall, NASA is set to launch the James Webb
1: Space Telescope into orbit around Earth. The project, which has been more than two decades in the making, will give us a new view on the cosmos and its origins. This week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Rourke Hobbaker checks in on the telescope and what needs to be done to ensure a successful launch.
8: We are a couple months away from the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. Two and a half decades in the making, JWST will, inevitably, upend our current understanding of the universe. This is Radio Astronomy on WORT 89.9, and I'm Rourke, your host for today. The James Webb Space Telescope, also known as JWST, is on its way to French Guiana, There, it will undergo final preparations and tests until it gets launched. The current launch date is set for October 31st. However, its history of delays has most people expecting a November launch date. The original planning and proposal for the telescope happened in 1997, and they predicted a launch in 2007. Since 2000, the launch date has been continuously pushed back, and the cost of the project has been increasing. However, the final product appears to go above and beyond the original expectations for the instrument. After the success of the Hubble Space Telescope, NASA started working on JWST to follow up on Hubble's discoveries. In particular, JWST will be able to look further back in time. Let's do a quick space and time review so that last statement makes more sense. Light has a finite speed nearly 300 million meters per second. We only start to notice this speed when observing the sun. It takes about eight minutes for light from the sun to reach us because the sun is 150 billion meters away from us. Obviously, this effect isn't noticeable when you take pictures of a friend. For large distances, it takes a long time for light to reach us. Therefore, when we see stars, we are actually seeing a picture from a long time ago in that star's life. And that's the best we can do. To see how an object changes, we have to wait for more recent light to reach the Earth. Current estimates predict that JWST will be able to snap pictures of the first galaxies and stars ever formed. After the Big Bang and the primordial soup of particles, which produces the cosmic microwave background, there is a dark age before any stars are formed. But then, 300 million years after the Big Bang, stars and galaxies should start to form. JWST will be our best chance yet to get pictures of that age of the universe. JWST will give a significant amount of data toward the study of Population 3 stars. These stars are defined by their lack of metallicity. Any elements beyond helium count as metal for astronomers. Because there had not been stars to create those elements beyond helium via nuclear fusion, elements beyond helium are rare in early stellar populations. In addition to probing the early universe, JWST will be used by exoplanet astronomers. The study of exoplanets has exploded in the last two decades. As a result, JWST's plans have been adjusted and tweaked so that astronomers can use it to study systems like TRAPPIST-1. This star system is over 40 light years from Earth. And astronomers have already found seven terrestrial rocky planets around it. With JWST, they will be able to study not only the entire system, but also the atmospheres of each of those planets. This will help us determine their habitability and history. In addition to giving us terabytes of data, JWST will be at the Sun-Earth L2 Lagrange point. Short story is, that's a point of gravitational stability in the Sun-Earth system. Directly in line with the Earth and Sun, the L2 point sits beyond Earth, so the Earth itself blocks some sunlight from that point. At the moment, the only spacecraft at the L2 point are GAIA and the SRG X-ray Observatory. But NASA and international collaborators are planning to use the Earth as a sun shield for more telescopes by placing them at the Sun-Earth L2 Lagrange point. This point will eventually be home to the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, and the Advanced Telescope for High Energy Astrophysics. Those telescopes are still undergoing production and design, but JWST is the start of a new era of space observatories at the L2 point. We've mentioned JWST before on this podcast, and we will definitely bring it to your attention again as the launch approaches. After 25 years of work, thousands of human minds have created a technological marvel. I can't wait to see the Hubble Space Telescope's successor in action. Maybe this podcast has gotten you interested in the James Webb Space Telescope. Check out NASA's resources on JWST, as well as information on the cameras and spectrographs it is carrying. I hope you have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening
1: to
0: WORT's Live Local News at 6.
1: Your reporter tonight was Nate Wegehout.
0: Special thanks to future contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff of the Daily Cardinal.
1: Jonah Chester produced this newscast.
0: Dave Lawrence engineered the show.
1: And Chali Pittman is the news director at WORT. I've been your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast.
0: Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with the Nuestro Patio. Good night.